What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement, and hopefully one glorious day, a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I want to thank you for stopping by. I am your host, Josh. And just to start off the show, I want to say thank you so much for coming by. Um, I do want to apologize because I am sick. Um, Thankfully, it is not COVID. Um, It is a sinus infection of sorts. But I do have a gross cough and a sniffly nose. So I do apologize for that. Um, But other than that, we should be good, y'all. So I hope you can enjoy the show. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the difficulties that come with trying to understand political and class struggle from within one of the world's largest imperial empires that has ever existed, the United States. Now, this is not an issue that is specific to the United States, but this is where I live. Um, We can generalize it a little bit more and say the difficulty in the West, because a lot of the Western countries have their ideology, social relations, and class character stem uh, quite collectively from... uh, Western Europe and the development of European colonialism. So a lot of our, um, for example, individualist um, or what we might call chauvinist uh, understanding of the global south and our oftentimes ignorance and lack of concern for those outside of ourselves, whether we are Um, leftists, communists, socialists, or just workers, a lot of us deep down in our core have a survival tactic built into us that is intended to basically be self-serving. Most of our social relations, uh, which develop into our culture, uh, are based on individuality whether that's individual rights or individual property ownership, um, individual production, consumption, and profiting. These are all things which are very crucial to the American or Western lifestyle um, that is not necessarily true or wasn't necessarily true of the whole world until the West really got hold of the whole world. So I want to talk about this difficulty because I think it's something that I see quite frequently on the left here in the United States um, that I have struggled with, that friends of mine have struggled with, um, that I feel we really need to um, kind of smash out before we can see any successful class struggle. So before we get into that discussion, I want to just make mention as to why we Marxists and communists believe in the theories of class struggle versus a more social or specifically economic uh, or even specifically political struggle. Let's go ahead and explain out why a class struggle is different and necessary. So, the most crucial part of Marxism, the most important thing that Marx and Engels themselves were ever able to give us was the theory of materialism, reimagined in the capitalist colonial um, epoch. So now, the reason why it's important to distinguish that it happened specifically within the capitalist uh, epoch is because Marx and Engels themselves believed in, um, I guess you would call it, scientific uh, 
conscientiousness um, in the sense that oftentimes neither Marx nor Engels spoke on anything that they, A, could not empirically prove um, their theory and their argument for, or B, that they did not have enough working information on. So, I mean, that much makes sense, and many of us need to begin to embody that same uh, mentality, myself included, that we need not comment on anything that we do not have proper understanding for. Um, For example, Das Kapital, the book that I'm going to talk about for a little bit, um, that book was based on 25 plus years of research. Um, And, you know, it, it doesn't take me to say it. Many folks before me have said it. If you don't believe me, you can go learn for yourself. But a lot of the claims that are made against Marxism that it's, you know, necessarily determinant or that it makes light the struggles of the rest of the world uh, or the rest of the kind of social sphere outside of the economic one. There are people who boil it down to uh, what is called, quote, economic materialism, um, which Lenin throughout his life makes clear points to say there's no such thing as economic materialism. There is simply materialism and using a materialist lens to analyze the field of economics does not create some new ideology it's just using an already existing framework to understand empirically and scientifically a certain field of study and this is what i want to talk about so a lot of us right in the west have been born into a world which is really, really good at telling us that everything is how it is because it's supposed to be, and everything's going to say the same as the same as it always was because that's how it always was. Um, even if not intended to, this uh, kind of line of logic goes quite hand-in-hand with a uh, Christian or uh, um, theist kind of line of logic. But the difficulty here is this might have been able to be believed in a period of time of even more immense censorship than we have today, even more immense control of knowledge, and an even more lacking understanding of the world outside of ourselves, history and society prior to our own existence. Now, this is sometimes used as a quip against Marxism, because when Marx and Engels were alive, They did not make a mission of defining and understanding every part, every every characteristic of life itself. Um, As Lenin points out very clearly in his writing, what the, well, what is it? What the friends of the people are and what they have to say about social democracy, I think it's called. He's doing a critique of a anti-Marxist or an anti-social democracy. Uh, I don't know if it was a book, a pamphlet, or an article that came out that made some pretty ridiculous claims about Marx, um, made some pretty ridiculous claims about Engels, um, and a huge basis of what their arguments against Marx and Engels were was the fact that Marx and Engels did not do a proper enough job of explaining anything other than capitalist society. Now, I certainly can say that more than just a simple explanation of capitalist society was given to us by Marx and Engels. 
Marks and Angles gave us a very science to use to not only understand capitalism, but to be able to empirically step from within capitalism to a scientific model of socialism. And they were able to comprehend and understand such a qualitative jump through their incredible analysis of and understanding of historical development of human society. In Angles on the Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State, thanks to a uh, biologist by the name of Morgan, who did a early study of the indigenous peoples of North America. Uh, I don't know the accuracy or the cancelability of this study, but this is the study that Angles used as a basis to explain the very development of the familial relations, the mode of production, and therefore the private property framework and the state as a historical development, but also as a fluid and, um, well, I don't want to say fluid, I guess, a, a dialectical being which exists differently in different societies. So I just threw a lot of information at you. Um, I don't know how much of that really is comprehensible together. So let me try to explain it out real quick. <clears throat> the reason why we want to understand what a class struggle is, right, is not because we just think it would be a good idea, but because through the empirical and scientific study of historical development and a dialectical analysis of our own time period, our own mode of production, and our own society and its structure, Marx and Engels showed empirically that the only way that society has changed throughout history has been through revolutionary qualitative jumps in the actual makeup of society. We've discussed it before, but really quick, you start with your early communalist societies where you have a structure of living an economic mode of production and social relations which are based on a more egalitarian structure which is intended for the many to provide for the many. Then, eventually, due to the very nature that a particular group of those people gave birth to more people, at one period of time, the matriarchal society developed. This meant that the uh, person or people with the uterus, usually referred to as women, um, they are, and I, I say usually referred to as women because this is what you might hear the average person say, but folks with uteruses are folks with uteruses, plain and simple. Um, so folks with uteruses were able to be somewhat of a figure of power or of, I guess one might say, decisiveness and governance uh, within society. And then slowly but surely, you had the development of early agricultural societies where rather than simply being, I don't want to say a slave to, but being 
wholly tied to nature as it produced itself naturally, now people took the effort to grow their own crops, to pro- to uh, till their own land, and to stay far more stationary, far more in place than ever before. And this is where you see the early set or the early stage of a patriarchal society developing because of course <clears throat> and uh, this is this is the difficulty with speaking on subjects like this is we do not have incredible amounts of history um we have some i don't know all of it but what i do know is to some extent because of the need for those with uteruses to be pregnant for nine months and then give birth and be able to take care of the child, it was, to some extent, a man's job to be the laborious one. Um, Eventually, this meant that it was the laborers, those who were producing the crops they because of their very place within society and again this is why I don't want to say men necessarily but those who produced the things were able to eventually not only just produce enough for plain sustenance but due to the cultivation of land due to the farming practices that were developed, they were able to produce a surplus. Now, surely, there were societies throughout a more communalist period where that surplus might have been redistributed among the masses among the people themselves this is uh, quite frequently discussed and noted in indigenous cultures of all kind where trading and things of that nature began to develop not necessarily as means of profiting but of means of exchanging Now, this is where we begin to see the development of the commodity. And I know that a lot of us understand a commodity in its capitalist sense. But as Marx makes very clear, a commodity is not a plainly capitalist thing or being. It is not specific or particular to a capitalist society. There were commodities here in the early trading and early agricultural societies. Now, when a commodity begins to develop, it requires two things. First and foremost, a commodity requires an exchange value. Now, that exchange value means that it also necessitates a use value. You wouldn't exchange something that you owned that you could use for something that someone else owns that you couldn't use. If you were to buy a broken down car or if you were to trade a properly functioning drill for three broken hammers, this would be, it would be illogical. It wouldn't necessarily happen and it is not the basis of exchange that we want to study because of course this would be ridiculous to base our study off of commodities and exchange by a commodity which cannot be exchanged so a commodity which can be exchanged requires a use value and therefore that use value provides it with an exchange value. The exchange value 
is properly understood only at the point of exchange. So Marx explained this out far better than I can. If you would like a more comprehensive understanding of this, we're going to get into it a little bit here, but if you want a fully developed understanding of the production of commodities and the early capitalist uh, development, look up the Marxist Project on YouTube. It does great work. So because of the development of this form of exchange, because of the development of human society, the early agricultural societies, through their constant production of surplus, begin to change in form. Rather than production for sustenance, and then the surplus being used for trade and exchange on a more mutual basis, eventually, soon, less and less producers exist because by the very existence of a developing market, there is a already pre-existing relationship of exploitation. Now, even though you would have had far more producers in this period of time than you have now, it was different in a early agricultural society where everyone's very living came from the production of things like food and goods. Whereas now you begin to see a marketplace where people aren't necessarily growing all their own food, where people aren't necessarily owning their own tax of land. In some cases, you begin to see the development of what we call feudalism. The difference being the power relationship that begins to develop because fewer and fewer producers exist. That means more of the owners of the means of production fall into the reserve army of laborers, people who have to work in order to live, rather than people who live because they have everything they need without having to work, at least in a exploitative relationship. And this is where we see the seeds of class society. This is where we need to begin to understand the exploitative relationship in production. Now, in early communal societies, there was a more egalitarian basis, meaning the goods of production, the fruits of the labor of a society was more likely to get to and be redistributed to a majority of the people. But eventually, because this surplus no longer was uh, simply concentrated within a given society, but trade and exchange began... Now, the extra surplus that might have been redistributed to people becomes a surplus which is sold or exchanged in a market of sorts. Now, we need to understand that, you know, we might think of bartering in a very simplistic manner, but there was a period of time before money was the main medium of trade. So you have to understand that in early production, it wasn't necessarily that you had a capitalist who 
could own all the land, it could own all the workers and pay them a wage and force them to work um, excruciating hours because they weren't going to eat any other way. This wasn't necessarily the case yet, but it was developing, it was becoming the case. So this is where you begin to see the seed of class society because if the surplus isn't being redistributed to everyone, that means that everyone isn't any longer on a more equal footing. You have a genuine development of inequality. You had some people who were right there. They were the ones who were producing things. They were the ones who were producing and then appropriating or owning their products. And they were the ones producing the products which they would end up owning, which then they were able to take to a marketplace and trade. No one else. Now, eventually, because less and less and less people were actually able to be the ones producing things, now you saw the development of an inequality. So how do these people who don't own things, who don't produce themselves, how do they eat? Well, surely at one point in time, you could imagine that there was far more food available in just plain nature. But eventually that nature was not in ownership of the many. It soon became an ownership of the few. After your early agricultural societies, as history continued for two, three, four, five, six hundred years or so, a thousand years maybe, you get to a point where because of the very steady nature of that mode of production, again, individuals or select groups are the only ones who are producing things. They own the products of their labor. Eventually, they are able to use those products of labor, not simply as a means to trade, you know, a cow for some lamb, not simply as a means to trade lamb for a table, not simply to be able to exchange things for things, but now you had such immense wealth, you had such immense tax of land that small families or groups or even individuals would own against uh, you know, the will of the masses because the masses didn't have an equal standing in this case. Um, you have the development of kings and queens, governesses, landlords, etc. Because over time, certain familial ties are built, certain connections between the different areas within the mode of production begin to develop. And because of that, you have a division of the production, the mode of production, into those who own and those who labor. Again, you saw the early seeds of this begin to develop in an early agricultural society, because even though more people owned land, even though more people had the, me- the means to produce, at the very least, a sustenance for themselves. It was not everyone. And as that process continued, as the very mode of production that existed in that society, which eventually began to develop towards a mode of production for individual or small group appropriation, you have the development or at least the beginning of an understanding because of the more ease to understand those, those kind of social relations. In a feudalist society, you can see how class society works.
And I say it's a little easier to understand in a feudal society because, to be honest, I can't explain it very well to you when discussing an early agricultural society because I don't have as much historical knowledge on that time period. But it's easy to understand class society when you're talking kings and queens, subjects, you know, when you're talking landlords and serfs. What you're talking actually is a reformation of the already existing power structure. In the early agricultural societies, you had the separation between those who own the land, those who own the tools and the means of production, the irrigation systems, the wells, etc. And then, in the period of time that we call feudalism, this intensifies because less and less people are given legal right to own land. And this is where we see the very, very, very beginning, at least in an easy-to-understand form, again, of the state. The state is the organized body of oppression of one class over another. The the state does not look like the U.S. government. The state does not look like the New Zealand government. The state doesn't look like the early feudal societies of Great Britain or Western Europe in general, it looks like all of them. Because similar to a commodity, which first was produced almost out of uh, accidents, but then eventually became the very means of production, or the very mode of production, commodity fetishization develops, which is not a kink which uh, means that you're sexually attracted to money or commodities. What commodity fetishization means is in the way that the word fetish was actually uh, developed, which meant that a, a thing basically had spiritual or magical capabilities or was believed to, to fetishize something was almost to mystify it, to get to uh, uh, almost... in employ or give it magical powers. I know that's confusing, but basically what it means is the commodity became the most important thing in society. It wasn't just sustenance anymore. Commodity production is what it became about. So it's important to understand fucking all of this. And that's why Marx spent most of his life trying to study this is because this is the basis by which we begin to understand the problems that we are facing today. If you want to talk about why Marx and Engels felt that class struggle was the way in which society had and would change, is because if you look at the historical development of human society, this is precisely how it went. Although we can look at the superstructure of culture, of uh, political formation, of social uh, and religious issues, that all stems from your place within the mode of production. If you were a part of the producers, if in the early agricultural societies... You were the one who was actually in ownership of the land, then that would be one thing, and that would mean that your life were structured a certain way. If you were a part of the producing class, 
in a feudal society, that is a much different experience. We have to understand this. We have to understand how the economy, the mode of production, forms the base of society, not the superstructure. Because if we understand this, we can understand how the issue... If we can understand this, we can understand how the issues of society developed. Marx shows through his analysis of commodities, of capitalist production, how the historical development of politics, society, law, etc., all stems not from already existing relations, but relations that develop and develop through the ever-changing mode of production. Again, you would have a society of matriarchs, to use that word loosely, not in a society where those who have uteruses are not valued as the very life giver of society, but are valued as commodities, just like you and me, because they are simple wage earners. You have certain laws that exist within a feudal society that do not exist today because of the change in the mode of production. Because during the end of the feudal societies, you have a mass of not only middle-class shopkeepers and um, landowners, we oftentimes get caught up on these individuals, although they did play the most uh, revolutionary role at the time, they did not constitute their own class. They were the middling class between the owners and the producers. They were the distributors, to just kind of use loose wordage. Um, And so in this period of time, the change in the mode of production came when the middle class overthrew by the combined force of the middle class itself, along with the working classes, uh, the students, the even impoverished, because they too had to see their material conditions change. Now, this did not just come because, oh, the middle class decided it actually didn't want to be a middle class anymore. It just randomly decided on its own that it was going to just just have a revolution for whatever reason. The very assumption of a middle class already presumes a development of a working and a ruling class It already presumes a pre-existing relationship of production and exchange. It already presumes the relationships that many people try to discredit. And now this middle class overthrowing the former ruling class and now taking itself 
to the heights of ownership of becoming and constituting the new ruling class, the mode of production changes. The individuals or the class which constitutes the working class now has changed. And now we have to understand here also that the very distinct reason why this happened is because the mode of production changed even before then. No longer were we producing things which solely went to the ownership of the kings and queens, the landlords and those individuals of those sort, but now the shopkeepers, the individual producers, the uh, academia, and the developing middle class almost comes right from underneath and sweeps the former rule of the aristocracy of the absolutists and overthrows the ruling structure. It did this out of necessity because the mode of production, the way things were being produced, what they were producing them for, and who was producing them, and the mode of appropriation, therefore who those products went to, who made a profit off of those products, and who owned the things that were required to make those products, that changed. Again, it was no longer solely the absolute monarchs. It was also, and soon became exclusively, the ownership of those who would sell it. The shopkeepers, the factory owners, the... um you know, the timber mills, the whatever. These people changed their nature, their revolutionary nature changed, not because of their own consciousness, but because as the economic base of society developed, their place within that also changed. So their class structure began to change. And this is where we begin to understand in a little bit more uh, depth, maybe, why the mode of production is so important to Marx and Engels. is because this is how history had had been observed by Marx and Engels to develop, was by the means of production. And they showed empirically in not only capital, but again, in the origins of the family, private property, and the state by Engels, among many other of their articles and works that they had published throughout their lifetime, Marx and Engels were able to empirically show that it was in fact the economic base which determined the political and social superstructures, laws, politics, sexual and gender relations, the family, government, the state, trade, all of these things developed not on their own, not in isolation, not of their own accord, 
but directly in relation to the changes in the means of production. Now, if I was not able to properly enough ramble out an explanation to you that made sense, I apologize. This is a very complex theory. And this is why I feel myself and others who agree with these theories must continue to produce content which can try to further explain these things. As I said, please look into Marxist Project on YouTube. He does a fantastic job explaining all of what I just tried to explain And he's the one I learned it from. Now, it is not his fault that I can't explain it well. That is my own fault. But you should know that that's another great resource to check out. So please do. Um, Other than that, um, I do just want to say that if, if you are maybe you know, kind of like, uh, you can understand what I'm saying. You can understand the analysis. You just plainly disagree with it. I can't do anything for you. I can't convince you otherwise. Nobody can. But if you sincerely doubt that Marxism specifically is correct, not only in this way, but correct as in it gives us the proper analysis and framework to structure our societal change on, and therefore you do not believe in its conclusions of a proletarian revolution, of the dictatorship of the proletariat, and of the use of these two tools to emancipate the working and oppressed people of the world, then please do me a favor and go read the theory yourself. Engage with it. Read it. Try to absorb it. Take notes. Write out a critique. Try to get a full picture understanding of the theories of Marxism if you're going to try to refute them. Don't just say they're wrong because the Soviet Union collapsed. Don't just say they're wrong because Fidel Castro and Che and the Cuban Revolution have made mistakes. Don't just say they're wrong because China is building an economic superpower to overtake the United States and the Western powers of the world. This is all something that you cannot just critique out of thin air. Remember, Marx and Engels, unlike many people today, did not simply speak of opinions. They did not simply speak on things that they thought based off of a lazy and half-hearted, compromised understanding of the topics they're discussing, but dedicated their entire lives to truly and concretely understanding the theories of socialism, of capitalism, but also their concrete conditions within their real life. This is how we must also pursue our own struggles. Now, I am a Marxist because I believe in the theories of class struggle, proletarian revolution, and the dictatorship of the proletariat. Further than that, I believe that the working class requires a vanguard and that that vanguard is long as well as the mass organizations which are needed to actually lead a proletarian revolution need be developed on a mass line basis. 
We need to find those who are already at a point where they understand that things need to change and point them in the right directions. Tell them what needs to change, how it needs to change, and how we need to go about changing it. We have to bring the theories of Marxism and revolutionary communism to the masses because the world is dying and we are being killed. We live in a class society, meaning there is one class that rules over the other, and it uses the state, which is a uh, tool of the oppressing classes, which is used to suppress the subordinate uh, class. And this is a tool which the working and oppressed people can wield for themselves in order to suppress and eliminate class antagonisms and inequality between the few elites and the many producers of the very uh, commodities that the elites make their profits off of. So if you're still listening to this, folks, thank you very much. I want to say, you know, that it really means a lot. Uh, So if you could, please follow me on social media. Uh, If you could tell your friends about this, if you could engage with it and tell me what you think, maybe critique it, tell me what I said wrong, um, anything to make the show better. I really do appreciate it. Um, Please do engage, folks. You know, I get 30, 40 listens, but I don't get any emails. I don't get any DMs. I don't get anything like that. So please reach out. You can find me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com, or you can DM me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Um, But yeah, until then, folks, we'll see you next time. I hope you liked the show. I hope it was good enough, uh, and I hope that it was uh, comprehensive and actually made sense, because that's more what I'm going for than just rambling. But I'm usually stoned, uh, so that makes it a bit difficult. (laughs) All right, y'all, have a great day. Stay safe, stay revolutionary, and we'll see you next time.